Yes, my name is Robert Macmillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hjoil, and his traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrehid is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. Yes, for the Fonshire Rove Higgin Ogren Show, and And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Armagh flute and whistle player Brian Finnegan, best known as a member of Trad Supergroups Fluke and Can, but um, not many people know this maybe. Brian also plays with the godfather of Russian rock, Boris Grabrenshikov, and his band Aquarium. So, Istrasvitsya, Brian, welcome to your Khul and Kjoil. Oh, thanks, Molly Robert. Good to be here. Uh, now, I recently saw a video of you back in 1996, and you were extraordinary uh, even then. Now, you told me that was partly to do with uh, athletics and asthma. Could you explain? <laughs> well, yeah, it was a kind of slightly unorthodox way into music for me, really. Um, I There wasn't a lot of music in my house. My dad was into the Rolling Stones and... Patty Smith, but <clears throat> neither of my parents played. Uh, you know, they, they didn't play an instrument, nor nor did they sing. Um, but they they were involved in well, first of all, the civil rights, and then uh, the athletic club in Armagh, which was run by the Valley family, Brian and Ethna, uh, particularly Brian, and uh, <clears throat> and then as kind of way of just being associated with this the sports club. Uh, it was pretty evident pretty quickly that, you know, anything that was culturally rich and and valid and important around the town was was kind of coming in and out of, of the Valleys. You know, just not just the music, the Pipers Club, but the the art and the and the the athletics and cycling as well. So we just wanted to be close to them, you know, and my sister, little sister Clara went first. And then it didn't take very long, you know, for music to be in the house before it caught fire with everybody else. So, uh, so I, yeah, I started playing the whistle when I was eight. And, and pretty much until that point, I'd been a, a poorly sick, wee critter. You know, I had very bad asthma. I spent a lot of time. It was in, I was in, in fact, I was in hospital over Christmas, a miserable two-month spell in Craig Avon, you know, with bad asthma. So... And now, looking back, I, I thought, <clears throat> what a kind of universal stroke of of wisdom it was that I was given a whistle you know something that would make me particularly think about breathing challenge me you know um I mean I could have been given a concertina or a set of pipes and you know but the whistle seemed to be quite quickly seemed as a way of for me to vent stuff that you know I didn't even know I was I was I was unconscious of it then because you know when you're a kid you just you don't know what you're good at you just lift lift anything and give it a go, but you know the great thing about the valleys were they were they were so present to every child that you know they didn't nothing was missed so it was I I found myself kind of taken under Ethna's wing quite quickly because she could she maybe she just put it all together and she saw she knew the history of the family. Our families were close. My mum and dad babysat for, for Brian and Ethna. So 
I just became this kind of wee surrogate fledgling, you know, and she could see that I was struggling. And But then quite quickly, you know, because she, it was so trusting and, you know, I'd never been given that sort of trust or confidence, you know, around anything. And she was, she kept on saying, you can do it, you know, you just have a go, have a go. So that's kind of, you know, it's a kind of potent thing for a child to know that it's doing something right. Um, and that's kind of how it all started for me, you know, then by the age of, you know, between the sport and the flute playing by the, by 11, age 11, I'd kind of, I'd puffed all the asthma out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and two were your, obviously the Valleys, but did you have other influences when you were, you know, trying to come across your own style? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a weird one because, I mean, I was so very influenced by Matt Malloy. Uh, but before that, you know, I was really into Finton, Finton Valley. Uh, these, there was a great summer school out in Ben Burb uh, in every July between the Ulster Flat and the Ireland Flat. And Finton was the flute teacher. The Edward Bunton Summer School out in the ferry, you know, and I would have went uh, religiously to that for like six, seven years. And uh, I was, you know, Finton was a mighty character, very funny and and also very generous with all his tunes and technique and stuff. And uh, I just loved those summers with him. I didn't say that's the only time in the year that I would see him was be, would be for that week, but it was kept me topped up. You know, and he had a unique style. And I think maybe looking back as well, you know, I never really met anyone else that played the flute like Finton. You know, there was quite a lot of talk at the time of regional styles, you know, the Belfast style or the, you know, the Donegal or the Sligo or Leitrim style. And I just thought that was his style. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know, maybe that's the be yourself style. <laughs> you know, now looking back, I think it was, it was very Northern rooted, his style of flute playing, but yeah. He was, Fenton was like, you know, without, I think he was always kind of looking outside, even though he was very, you know, had, he was rooted in the turf of his own, of his of his own playing. He wasn't, he was seeking stuff, you know, out where music kind of disintegrates, you know, and he was like, his improvisation and some of his technique was just a wonder. Yeah. Um... Did you take that on then? Did you always want to be a professional uh, flute player, a professional musician, or did that just come about gradually? Um, I think maybe it was just that it was always it was always kind of inside somewhere, you know, Robert. Because I I remember, you know, when I got to a certain age at the Papers Club and played a flower or two and did all right, I was kind of fast tracked up into the senior group at the Pipers Club and that meant, you know, trips abroad. Uh, we were we went quite a few places with Cardinal O'Fee. We were we were his uh, his his uh, papal grad band. <clears throat> and so I saw I started seeing a bit of the world, you know, and playing, you know, on big stages in front of a lot of folk, you know, and again, you know, for for a child, you know, I'd never had the chance, you know. It was cross Molina in a caravan in the pouring rain. <laughs> up to that point, you know, and then suddenly I was on a plane and heading off and that kind of opens, opens, you know, travel is just such a, a, a kind of world view of, 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 of the human species. So I just thought this is amazing that I could play music that I love and, and get to do this as well, travel the world. So. Yeah, it's one that some people think that traditional music 
is so narrow, you know, it can be down to one townland, but at the same time, as many people have proven, and yourself especially, it's uh, it's an international, it's a universal thing as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, now I, 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 I had all that those years at the Papers Club, and that was, that was my, you know, that was the nest out of which I, I flew, you know, so I, I learned all the rules. You know, and, and and I learned to, you know, the because Brian and Ethna both have, you know, such immense regard for the tradition, and so I got I got all that, you know, I picked that up as I went. It wasn't just the the oral passing of the tune; it was the passing of the intent behind the tune and how to play it and how to carry it. So, you know, when it came for me time to, I started kind of hearing wee snippets of melody that I didn't recognize, um, and then. You know, it was a lot. It was a long thaw before I realised that you know I could maybe write a tune, because I you know I, I didn't think that there was just you know, there was enough beautiful stuff in the tradition. You know, why would why do I think that I could add anything to this immense collection? <clears throat> but and I gradually, you know, it, it wouldn't leave me alone until a point where I had to kind of write it down or start to play it, and then and then I kind of fell in love with the story of stuff. The stories behind uh, tunes, which are human stories, you know, and it was I think at that po- moment that the penny dropped for me, and I realised that, you know, it's bigger than a townland, and it's bigger than a, it's even bigger than than a tradition. It's it's a human condition. Yeah. Um, so what what is that creative process? You know, how you do do new tunes? How are they born? Is it, uh, does a tune appear in your head uh, when you're lying somewhere or is it an incident or well, what is it that uh, sparks the life of a new tune? Hmm. You know, I, I, for years I, I kind of, uh, I was, was convinced there was, there was something so mysterious. I don't know well, there is something so mysterious to, to creating, but I, I think that that kind of silky part of the heart, you know, that, that offers that moment that spark is really cautious you know because it wants to know that if it's going to come out show its face you're going to take it seriously you're not going to be watching the football or you know in the pub you know it needs to know you know because it, otherwise it'll just stay quiet a lifetime you know and um and so you know it was a bit haphazard in the early days because i wasn't given it you know i didn't keep my word and i wouldn't i wouldn't put time aside and make space there's so much clatter, you know, and noise around these days that it's like, it is, it is definitely, it was a bit of a cliche, but, you know, that, that suggestion of, of, you know, your own sound is quite, it is the quietest one of all, you know, and until you tune into it. So that was just kind of, <clears throat> there was a kind of growing up and realizing that, that if I want to, if I want to really go and find, get the big fish, I have to go fishing in deep water, you know, which means taking myself off, closing the door somewhere, closing, you know, uh, all the, all the noise in my head. And then, and then just, you know, making myself a place that, you know, a tune might want to come and land on, you know, a bit of a, a landing strip. So I do that now, you know, and sometimes it'll come and more often than not, it will in small, small bits. So, and you know, funnily enough, since March, because I, I, the other thing that I convinced myself was that I, I work better when I'm on the road, 
you know, well, that was a total myth, you know, because I, I get very little done when I'm on the road. It's too noisy. And, you know, I've got two small boys here and I, and, you know, there's never a single minute either at home until they go to bed. But since, you know, since February, when we all fell to earth, it's, it's kind of every night now, I, you know, it's, I go in, I find a room and I close the door and the, it's just been incredible, you know, the amount of work and writing that I've done since, since March that I'd never have done on the road. It's just a matter of getting it, getting it out to the public and record it and so on. But uh, that sounds a very solitary thing. But of course, you're a member of, uh, of a band, I think they're called Fluke, who started Fluke. off way back in 1995, I think. Were you a bit of an oddity then in the fact that there were three flute players in the band, yourself, Sarah and Michael McGoldrick? Uh, yeah, I think we were. We were a bit of a novelty act. Um, and in fact, you know, we were even more of a novelty act before we were flute. We were called Three Nations Flutes. None of us could work that one out because there was only two nations involved. Uh, um, but, you know, it, even whenever Ed came, Ed Boyd joined after a couple of gigs, you know, and even say I for the first year and a half, it was still it was still a bit of a, a novelty, uh, because it's yeah, there was when you got three flutes, no matter how 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 gracious and and uh, and uh, sharing you are, you know, with your your musical space, you're you're gonna stand on each other's toes, really. So it was full on. I mean, I, I kind of uh, love Mike the bits because I, of all the people I've ever played with, I just there was something between him and I that we didn't have to. There was no, there was no painstaking arrangements or or talking about who would go where. It was just a very you know intuitive, telepathic thing that was going on. So I missed him when he left, but when he left, it became less of a novelty act. It became more of a of a band. And John Joe came. It's like the two flutes stepped back and the rhythm section moved up. Yeah, that, that, that's the word I thought of, and that's the word uh, telepathic between now, between yourself uh, and Sarah. Uh, does that come after years of uh, playing together? Do you still have the, do you have the same musical philosophy? Um, you know, how does a band, any band, I suppose, gel together? Um, I think it's road miles. You know, I think that uh, you know if you've come if you've come out of like there's quite a few bands that have been formed out of the second scene, you know, and you know when they when they become a band, they're a new band, but in theory they've probably been playing together in that session for for years and years and years. So they know they know the twists and turns, and um, so I think with with fluke it wasn't like that at the start because we were all from very different traditions. Mike was in Manchester. Sarah came out of, you know, her ground was in classical and then jazz and I was in the north here. So it took it took like, you know, five, six, seven years before we got to that to that place. Um and then since then it's just I think, you know, the longer a band stay together unchanged, you just reach this place where it's kind of impossible to get with any other new project that you're involved with because you're uncertain and you know you don't want to take liberties and you're so yeah fluke is is just it's now really just a it's an instinct it's an instinct okay and well obviously it is because you hadn't recorded an album for 14 years 
and then you come up with Ancora. Uh, was it uh, easy to get together again after such a long hiatus, as it's called? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, difficult at all. I think you know the three Edsir and Joe are. You know, I, I know them. I've known them so long now. They're they're so easy on the head and heart. You know, really, and they're kind of they're like old friends. And when we took a break, you know, there was no bad will. There was no feeling of you know. I just can't stand to be around these folks anymore. I've had enough, you know, it's like no spinal tap moment. It was just a really, it was a kind of, uh, you know, a, a democratic agreement that, you know, we didn't want to churn out another accord, you know, that would have been a, a formula. <clears throat> we thought that we owed it more to the people that bought the, the first three albums that we we took ourselves off and, you know, had a life outside Fluke. And as we were doing, you know, sometimes 200 gigs a year, so there was there was very little time for anything else, and when you're in a band like that, no one ever asks you to do anything else because they they just you know they expect you not to be available. So there was quite a lot of stuff that we wanted to do, you know, that we hadn't been able to, and so it just seemed like the right move. And but then again, you know, it's the kind of ebb and flow of of music and life and friendship and stuff. We just that because we there was no bad will, we were always just around, you know, and pitching stuff off each other about other projects and you know, loving things that each 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 were doing. And then I got a gig in Armagh uh, at the Edward Bunton Harp Festival, and it was just a open palette, you know, just invite whoever you want. <clears throat> so I thought about about Ed, and then I thought about John Joe, and then I thought, you know, why not if we've got the two lads. Let's ask Sarah. Um, and we had literally five minutes of rehearsal time before we wandered on stage, and no, no one knew it was fake. You know, it was just it was just me plus friends. Um, and that was just uh, it was kind of overwhelming because it it just it was right there in the pocket again. You know, a little bit rusty, of course, but uh, that kind of you know uh, it was the catalyst to to move it forward and to reunite. Yeah, well, it was true for yourselves, but obviously you really connect with audiences. Fluke seems to be one of these bands that really, really connects with uh, with a, an audience. Um, silly question, why do, you, why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Uh, I think that quite, could quite possibly be a combination of Ed and his wit. Um, <laughs> um, and maybe... You know, maybe I think I I saw a video recently of of Fluke, and I was I'd been watching a few videos of different bands, and I I thought it struck me unbiased that I that we do engage visually each other a lot. You know, I yeah, Sarah and I rarely take our eyes off each other, and Ed and John Joe are the same, and there just seems to be that kind of eye contact all the time. You know, and I think it's really important in a band. You know, to have that kind of—it's almost like when I looked at it. Look, look. You know, some of my favorite bands are you—you kind of see them on stage, and you think, I, I have a feeling they don't even know we're here. You know, they're just playing to themselves, and we're listening in. So there's no there's no barrier between us. There's not a gig. There's not a band and an audience. We're in this together. And maybe that's kind of what folk feel. We feel like you know, you could be sitting at our feet. We're just, we're just playing, and you're part of it. Okay, you, you haven't taken up 
Sarah's uh, habit of standing on one foot? No. <laughs> she hasn't taken up my habit of shaving her head, so... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, flamingo to her. Okay. What can you do with can that you can't do with fluke? Oh, can... Can... Can uh, was... Can was more, more uh, considered. It was, it was going in deeper in regard to you know, uh, space and uh, and exploration. You know, and electronics and sonics and stuff. So there was a lot of stuff involved there that, you know, a lot of pedal boards, a lot of echo chambers, and you know that was, it was good fun for me because. Also, because you know you had a kit. Oh, sorry, you ever just trying to nudge the desk there? Uh, so yeah, I always kind of imagined that you know one day I'd like to play in a band where people were on their feet and boogieing, and I thought Fluke was that band, but it, you know, people a lot of lot of lot of folk. Uh, it was kind of the, the the time signatures in Fluke. You know, a lot of folk wouldn't really get up because they didn't know they didn't want to look silly if they were caught in seven eight. <laughs> or five eight and didn't know how to dance it. So uh but can were more for for the floor. It was more oomph and more there was it was more visceral. Um so I think yeah it was jazzier as well and there was a lot of kind of it started to kind of show me the colour of of rock. You know, the edge of rock or the edge of of jazz or the edge of indie. Or something we were one step further away from 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 trad whereas fluke is was quite you know fluke was kind of fluke was an island in between you know galicia and Brittany and and the rest of the celtic world whereas can were can had a bit more attitude well let's go beyond uh, the, the Celtic world and let's go to uh, India before we get to Russia. Uh, you have a big interest in Indian music as well. Does that influence your own playing or does it affect your musical philosophy? Um, uh, we bit of both. I think that you know, I spent a month in India when I was in my early 20s and I you know, I, I got to sit in with a couple of the country's best flute players um, and I didn't know what to expect. You know, it was an Irish Arts Council um, tour uh, and I thought I would be going out with a band and then it was just myself. So uh, it was, uh, there were some nights that felt like I was absolutely musically drowning, you know, because I, I kind of had a sense that I could, I could, that, that I I could manage the music that I played quite well. You know, I'd found a lovely wee bamboo flute, and I was on fire with that because I could express myself in ways that the the big black flute was a bit cl- clunky and slow to respond. Where they it was so nimble and fast and dynamic, the the bamboo that I'd found this kind of this door which I'd you know greedily stepped through, and I was flying, and I was playing tunes in that style and I was improvising a lot and uh, you know also I was practicing like four or five hours a day so my style was sharp and then I went off to India thinking you know full of gusto 
And uh, I was literally there three days until the, the full horror of how good these guys were suddenly just fell on top of me. The world came crashing in. You know, and yet when I look back at it now, I think oh, it was entirely right that I was there because it was all part of, you know, going deeper and deeper in the music because they, they taught me so much in the space of a month. The daily ritual of practice, the thinking about it, how, you know, how with so much regard to, you know, being on stage with a flute, you know, and how the hollow ground around, around a microphone, how clean it should be and you know, how they prepared before they went on. That was all alien to me. I was just, you know, off the bus and playing 100 mile an hour, you know, and there was no kind of getting ready for it, getting settled. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, it took me like a decade to really, to, to process a lot of that stuff that I'd learned in India. Well, we'll say that uh, Ireland and India are two, the two extremes of the Indo-European world and that mm. we learned, you know, that the Irish language, you know, started off and uh, is an Indo-European language. So there are words in Irish similar to words in uh, in Hindi or Sanskrit uh, and so on. Uh, in India, the hunger strikes are very important, they're very important here. And there's so many connections uh, between India and Ireland. Did you notice a musical connection and what was being played? Um, well, part part of the, the 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 performance every night was uh, in India. They call it a jugal bandy, and it's it's just a really it's just an improvisation. There are no rules, and so you know, someone throws out a phrase, and then you just you know you build there. And <clears throat> for me, that was. The most challenging of all because I you know I thought to myself um, you know I, I thought I was a good improviser but these guys are just like oh just ridiculous you know they there's no there's a kind of sense of trepidation when you still when I when I when, I, when, I, when an improviser might start you know you think to yourself okay that door is open now, but it's slightly terrifying if I if I leave it open because I'm just gonna have to keep going Whereas in India, that is, that's the whole portal through which they they step, is that open, immeasurable, you know, musical space that they, you know, that they find that they kind of connect into, um, <clears throat> and in Ireland, even though we, you know, you grew up learning the tradition orally. Um, and you could play a tune a thousand times and it could never be the same twice. There's still the tune and there's still this kind of genuflecting to the, the structure and form. And as much as you may vary it and improvise around it, you're never gonna, you're never too far away from it. You know, whereas in India, you're, you know, you're just in the same key, so to speak. And then anything out there is, is possible. So. But the funny thing was when, when I, after a little while and I started to loosen up about this and when you step into it, there were moments when, when both of us would just connect in the jigs or reels. And that was just, it was quite incredible. You know, I, I couldn't sleep, you know, some, some of the nights until, you know, like five in the morning thinking about how it could have been possible that we just did that together. So, you know, and, and they too, 
you know, I, 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 I sent ahead quite a lot of trad tunes. And when I got there, they hadn't learned a single one. They were more, you know, they said, yeah, no, we'd like to do this. You know, we'd like to not, to not think about it too much. If we get to that place, then if we can do it on the fly, then let's try that. Um, and they did, you know, it was like, I think it seemed to be that six eight in the, the the jig time was was easier than four four because in India they play a lot in seven eight and five and you know the odd strange numbers but uh, yeah the six the six eight really was was quite uh, we did a lot of of kind of of improvising around six eight and and, and nine eight slip jigs and and waltzes as well three four seven eight so. I, you know, there was one point when I, I, I started to play a tune, and I, this, this his name was Sunil Kankupta. Um, by the end that I, pl I played, I just played it around once. He joined me on the second time, and uh, I was only halfway through the B part that I thought to myself, "This isn't one of the tunes that I sent you." I just I just pulled this one out of out of the past, you know. How do you know? How do you know it? And afterwards, I said, well, "How do you know that, Jimmy?" He said, "I didn't. I didn't know it. I so just it, so it comes naturally." Yeah, he just he'd heard it once, and it was he just he just thought ah, that's the yeah, I know that tune, and he just played it back. He played it the second time through with me. I mean, it's, it kind of blew my mind, you know, that he could have latched onto it that quick, but. I thought, you know, it, uh, I've never met anyone that could do that, so. Okay, uh, so let's move from India northwards into Russia. Uh, how did you meet the godfather of Russian rock, Boris Gribyshenkov? That is a, it's a story, you know, that it's still, you know, it's, it's growing and growing over the years. I, Robert, it's, it's just that sometimes I find myself on, you know, in various parts of the, European and Asian uh, Russian scape and I think to myself I've how did it is it even possible that I'm here in this crazy circus um, but it was uh, it, it came through a chance a gig in New York in the town hall um, myself and John Joe had been invited out to play at the 25th anniversary of the World Music Institute and a very brilliant eminent Indian tabla player, Zakir Hussein, was the musical director. So it was full of, you know, uh, Indian uh, folk in the community in around New York, and they'd all come out to, to see their hero. And, uh, and quite, a, quite a lot of disciples, you know, followers of Sri Shinmoy, who, who I didn't know. I didn't know his, his teachings or his philosophy at all, you know. Um, but we were outside after the gig, and two guys approached myself and John Joe, and they said, we had a brilliant gig congratulated us both on the, our performance and then said you know we want to extend this invitation to you from uh, Sri Shinmoy he couldn't be here tonight but he'd like to invite you to his center tomorrow and bestow this great honor on you um, it's called uh, lifting up the world and so um, they explained a wee bit more detail you know he said uh, yeah, Sri was a, a, a fanatical sportsman on his day and a, weight, a champion weightlifter and a ultra marathon runner he does the these huge you know uh, ultra sports events for world peace um, but his ceremony is you know he he lifts 
he lifts the 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 the, the person who is to be bestowed the honor right a deadlift above him on this metal frame you know right into the air that's his way of, of thanking thanking you for what it your contribution to whatever to, to peace or music or art or sport and uh and i kind of still thought what are these guys talking about you know um an old man lifting weightlifting myself and john joe I mean, it's not every day you're you're offered such a thing. So I kind of we kind of politely backed out of it, and then they said, "Well, listen, here's our card. If you change your mind." So the hotel, I googled Shrewsbury, and I just was flattened when I, you know, started to follow his life. You know, and photographs of him lifting Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, you know, and I just, I kind of, you know, straight on the phone the next morning and said to the lads, "You know, we would love." to do this but the timing just you know we were we had a, a tight ship and we were heading out of town and we agreed to do it the next time uh, fluke were back over a year later um, and then Sri was in india so we missed that that year and then yeah in year red is a bitch in the news he passed on um and then six, eight six months later Got a call from London, my guy um, who was putting on a big night for him at the Royal Albert Hall. And he said, they're called friends in New York and they saw you at this gig. I know Shri was a fan of your music. We've got the, the Russian poet laureate. And he was a close friend of, of Shri. He's coming over to do the gig. Would you like to be involved? And so we jumped on a plane and I met Boris um, in, in London and we're part of that. And then... That was just the start of it. He he brought a, quite a big band, worldly music band, lots of Indian musicians um, out to Russia for a big fest, a big rock fest in Kazan. And after that, he just said, just, you know, do you want to jump on board for a tour with my band? Um, that was it. It's like 13 years ago. Yeah, it's incredible. There's, there's an MTV Unplugged uh, concert online, which is really, really Fabulous. I mean, I'd never heard uh, of Boris before, but uh, just watching that video and the way you two especially interact was just something incredible. Oh, yeah. You know, the great thing about him is I, th I think, well, deep down, I think he's he is definitely some, he's definitely molecularly in tune with Irish, with the Irish soul and the Irish way of thinking. He is just a, 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 a devoted, a devotee of, of Irish and Scottish folk music. You know, dating back, you know, 30 years, he heard Silly Wizards and he was blown away by, by them. And he has a very, very famous radio show, a bit of a John Peel show on, on the main Russian radio station it's called Aerostat every Friday night. And he's been doing it now for 23 years. Um, and so, you know, his whole his history of, of that show was all based around, you know, music of the world, you know, taking, taking music that, you know, most Russian folk would never have heard. And he's been playing Silly Wizard and you know, The Chieftains and Tristy Moore and over, over, over all that time. Yeah. Well, when we met him in London, you know, the funny thing was we were introduced to him and he got... And he didn't, I don't know, if, I don't quite think he knew what was coming because um, there was a, a mutual friend who was actually, who was, uh, who was putting on a gig um, 
Sahadeva and Sahadeva said, hey, Boris, our Celtic musicians are here. And this is Brian, he plays the flute. This is John Joe, he plays the boron. Boris said, hello, hello, nice to meet you. you know. And he says, wait a second, Brian, you, you play the flute, it's not Finnegan. <laughs> and uh, he was, I don't believe it. I'm muscle fan of folk. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a very funny, just surreal moment. Yeah, you must have done some fabulous gigs as well in Russia and the former Russian states. Aye. I, 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 you know, and I, I kind of only this year since February, um, you know, it's a lot of the new stuff that has been kind of orbiting me for these months that I've been writing and receiving and stuff. For the first time, you know, in 13 years, I think now the Russian journey is starting to bubble up because I think when you're so involved with something, you're too close to it, you know, it's like there isn't enough, there hasn't been enough time to think about. He's so hard working and it's so relentless, the rhythm that he works at, that I haven't really, you just haven't had time to start to think about the color of you know, and, and how it has really, it has changed my music inside, which it has enormously, like, you know, you couldn't, it couldn't, it couldn't, but, you know, he's, uh, he's so, he's, he's got the, the, the most ravenous appetite for music and, and burning hunger to create. I've just never known anyone like, you know, he's 60, 65 now, Boris, and he just, he plays and he, and he lives and he, and he dreams like an 18 year old. You know, it's just like he's wide open. If only we could all be like that. I um, know. Are you planning for whenever it happens, the post-COVID world? Can you plan for the post-COVID world? You know, I kind of panicked. I, I you know, a slight little moment of meltdown whenever this all happened. I'd been out in Seville with uh, Sean Oak Graham. We did a gig out there on the 29th of February. You know, and even then, you know, the storm clouds were were coming in. There was talk of, you know, whether it would happen or not. And then um, we came back and it, it quickly became, you know, evident that that just gigs were evaporating. Um, so there was a moment of, of terror, you know. I'm the kind of primary uh, um, breadwinner in, in my young family so I you know you do you think about how, how it's going to all pan out and then I followed quite quickly by a kind of sense of, of calm you know <laughs> I just I just thought to myself put the skids on here it's you know if you have to kind of practice this uh, kind of under slightly more detached understanding of 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 a the rhythm of life, the universe, and the, you know, I, I've always been, I think my, since I was a kid, my music has always been shaped by stories. And I thought to myself, this is the, this is just a huge story. This is one, probably one of the biggest of them all. You know, we don't know where it's going to end. You don't, we don't know what the, what are, the world that we knew is going to look like when it comes back. Um, if music will ever be the same, the way that we share it and, 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 you know, play it together. So this is a great opportunity, you know, to stay calm and uh, let it let it go. And then, and kind of in the process of letting it go, I kind of let it flow as well. And 
I just it helped me reframe the whole time. You know, I started to write a lot, and so I think you know I I just came back at a few gigs in Ukraine with Boris um, and a gig in Russia, and it felt gnarly out there. It felt you know it wasn't the actual performing. The performing was was great. It was everything around it that was just it felt off. Um, you know, folk are running in front of the stage, you know, a thousand deep, you know, and there was there wasn't a single mask in sight. And you know, I'm I, I, I don't buy into the you know too much of the, the fear around it now, but I I thought if, the, if you know if health and safety were in here, this would all be shut down in a flash, you know, because it's just it's a petri dish for <laughs> so I thought to myself, you know, I I don't I don't know if it's a good idea to be, you know, to be rushing back so quick. I was kind of dreading going, go, you know, getting on a plane again and, and heading off into it. But then I, you know, it's yeah, it's just. I think music is is one of those levelers. It's just the band were were. It felt great to be back in that brotherhood again. So. It's a kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's just such a, uh, a, a kind of, you know, a, a, an empty space, like a vacuum out there. And it's because, because over here, you know, it's, it's not even that, you know, everything's on hold. It's like the circuit has been fractured. You know, it's like we had gigs pushed back the next year and half of them, the venues aren't reopening. You know, so it's like, it's not not about the gigs coming back. It's like there's there's nowhere to do the gig. It's like people have just been broken. So it's hard to know, you know, um, where how that'll all pan out. In Fluke, you know, we had gigs that were rescheduled, and Sarah in the band is she looks after all our work. She works for Alan Beerman. She was quite quick off the market. She said, you know, even if we're rebooking stuff, every band from around the world is all now looking at the same touring times so we need to move quick um so we had a gig with uh, moving on music we had a tour with them that was booked uh and that was pushed back to the autumn and now it's in january it's been pushed back to january so i mean it's who knows how that'll look yeah but as i say it's an empty space out there but thankfully music is still being made music is still being composed uh, you can get it now in this wonderful invention called uh, the internet and there's so much uh, happening online and mm -hmm. what's online will probably hopefully last for hundreds of years if not uh, forever which brings me to the final question and sorry for not giving you a lot of notice if the world does come to an end and later aliens come and they find a time capsule and in it is some music by Brian Finnegan which piece of music would you like them to find? <laughs> I told you it was a difficult question. <laughs> that was a good one, Robert. Waiting to right to the end, thinking the deal. Uh, you know, uh, is, you mean traditional or any? It's your choice. I'll draw from anyway. Well, as long as you're, as long as you're playing on it. Ah, okay, great. So no, not not one one more brick on the wall. No, kind <laughs> of magic. Uh, you know, I think that. Uh, there has been something, 
shift in the way that I that I I've been writing um, since February, and I'm kind of liking the the, the kind of slight without being too rude, the badass jagged jaggedness of of some of my new my new tunes. But there's a set that I'm hoping to record. Um, it was a commission for a Music Network. They had a lovely series called the Butterfly Sessions, um, and there were two pieces on that. One was I had thought quite deeply about it um, and the the evolution of it it has, it has a you know a story running through it there but they go together um, one is called crossing Rubicon and the other one was written for my nine-year-old um, and his name is Olin and I think that yeah those two tunes they're two but they go together they okay. you couldn't have one without the Okay, sorry, what's the second one called? The second one is called Olin, O-L-L-I-N. That's the name of my eldest boy. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Well, with us, we're, we're going to uh, finish up. Uh, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you. What I found about this series is about how thoughtful uh, musicians are, how they really think about the music. It's not, you know... Uh, I want to be famous, I want to be on uh, talent shows on TV, but traditional mu musicians really have the music in their hearts and that comes out when speaking to people, I think. I, I, I found that as well, you know, I, I think that music is, <clears throat> I think if you're playing music for the right, for the right reasons, it's not, I mean, for me, it's, um, it's kind of preservation of my own soul. I, I, I have to play it, you know, I, I kind of, you know, it's, I write tunes as well. And, the, you know, I, they, they seem to come at, at critical moments, you know, when, when there's uh, in times of peril, you know, or great emergency stuff will just reveal itself and, and bubble up, you know, as a kind of like a wee life raft. <clears throat> and it's not for, it's not for anyone else. It's just for me. But I know that other people have to hear it. And so it's just on its way through. And then I, I just, it never grows old to see the reaction that someone else has when they hear it. You know, and for, for me, that's what it's all about. It's just about giving it and giving it away. And okay. I don't care about anything else. Well, well, we're, uh, right, well, we're going to uh, give away, just to finish off, we're going to give away uh, two tunes from the Butterfly Sessions, and this is Crossing the Rubicon and Oli.
Well, that's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchudan Hjoil podcast from Andrewhead, Slanagas Banacht. <laughs>